Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. The recent kidnap and murder of American citizens by a Mexican drug cartel has refocused the attention of politicians and the international media about Mexico's failure to combat its growing cartels and about an unprecedented drug crisis that exists in the United States that claimed more than 107,000 lives in the first eight months of 2022. About two-thirds of this were caused by fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that is now being mass-produced in secret factories throughout Mexico, with raw materials coming mainly from China, and is being sold on the streets and throughout social media to young Americans dying of overdose. To speak with me about how crime groups in the US, Mexico, and China are interacting in the supply of fentanyl, and what is fueling the deadliest drug threat facing this country, that it is my pleasure to welcome Vanda Felba Brown, a Brookings Scholar of Crime, Conflict, and Non-Traditional Security Threats, and Guillermo Valdez, former head of Mexico's Center for Investigation and National Security, CISEN. Vanda, Guillermo, thank you very much for being here in the midst of a very low point in U.S.-Mexico security cooperation. As you know, fentanyl smuggling and seizures have both increased sharply in recent years. Last year alone, the U.S. Drug Administration seized 379 million deadly doses of fentanyl from communities across the country, that is enough to kill every man, woman, and child in the United States. Moreover, six out of 10 of these pills contain potentially lethal dose. Vanda, what is happening? Can you explain to us what is fueling this crisis? Sure. Thank you for having me on the show. So uh, the fentanyl epidemic is really the greatest U.S. drug epidemic in history, and arguably, it's one of the greatest drug epidemics in history, period. It has emerged as the most potent mutation of the opioid epidemic that started in the 1990s with the unscrupulous prescription of prescription opioids, such as oxycodone, by the U.S. pharmaceutical industry. And it for about a decade, the um, pharmaceutical industry overprescribed prescription opioids and persuaded all kinds of regulatory bodies that they were harmless, they were not causing substance use disorders, and uh, caused far greater addiction uh, than uh, the illegal market ever could. But after about a decade, it finally became obvious how many people were developing substance use disorders. And so the U.S. regulatory agencies uh, changed uh, and restricted the supply of prescription opioids. But meanwhile, you have this already vast segments of, of the population that were suffering from substance use disorder and were sourcing opioids from other markets. First, that was heroin. And ultimately, by about 2012-2013, uh, Chinese producers of synthetic opioid, known fentanyl, made their way into the U.S. market. 
Now, synthetic opioids are far more dangerous than other uh, opioids. They are many more times as potent as plant-based opioids. Fentanyl is perhaps um, 100 times as potent as morphine. So that means that they cause substance use disorders very rapidly, but they also very rapidly lead to overdose that can be lethal and frequently is lethal. But despite the fact that synthetic opioids are so dangerous for users, they are extremely appealing to traffickers. And that's because the the potency per weight ratio is so enormously advantageous. So it takes tiny amount of fentanyl that needs to be smuggled into the United States to supply the entire market in comparison for the amount it would take to supply uh, the heroin market. And although fentanyl was originally supplied uh, in a Finnish form out of China, even shipped by postal services because it's so light, even though it's so potent, eventually Mexican drug trafficking groups noticed this drug sweeping the U.S. market and inserted themselves into it. And as the United States persuaded China to crack down on those direct shipments, either Finnish fentanyl or later on precursor chemicals would be shipped to Mexico, where the Sinaloa cartel and the cartel Jalisco Nova Generacion would purchase them and would produce fentanyl. And so today, uh, we are not only seeing fentanyl as the dominant drug in the U.S. market, we are seeing fentanyl mixed into cocaine. In fact, that's what's keeping the U.S. cocaine market alive. It's the mixing of fentanyl into it. We're seeing fentanyl in methamphetamine mixed together. And we are, of course, seeing also the significant expansion of fentanyl use in Mexico, particularly in northern Mexican states, as the Mexican cartels are not simply shipping it to the U.S., but increasingly using it in Mexican retail markets. Guillermo, fentanyl is certainly a very big business. How did the Mexican cartels, particularly Sinaloa and Jalisco, as Vanda said, evolved into being the main suppliers of it into the U.S. market? Well, it's not uh, it's not difficult to explain that that change in the way the Mexican cartels work with their with the drugs. Because drug trafficking in Mexico is at least 100 years. So the Mexican cartels have a lot of experience and a lot of infrastructure to make, to produce and export drugs to the United States. For example, they began to produce marijuana and heroin. Then they moved, they incorporated cocaine in the decades of the 80s in the last century. And also they began to produce methamphetamines in the 90s. So they have all the capacities to change to new drugs. When the shipment of fentanyl from China were in trouble, they said it's our our opportunity. So they have all the expertise to produce and all what it was needed to produce fentanyl. For example, they have a lot of contacts in the in Asia to get the chemical precursors to produce fentanyl. So they can import to Mexico all the chemicals 
in an easy way. They have had a lot of laboratories to produce synthetic drugs. So it was no problem to, to make the change to produce them. They have people trained to produce chemical or synthetic drugs. They have all the shipment protection and corrupt police to transport and export the drug to the United States. So they have everything to do that. So if the new business is fentanyl, they could easily change to that. So that was happening in the last seven, eight years in the, in the Mexican cartel. So it's not strange to know that they produce and uh, offer the most part of the fentanyl that is consumed by the United States. As simple as that. It is no surprise that fentanyl has exploded into the top of the political agenda, as it involves probably the three most politically sensitive issues in Washington right now. First, of course, it touches the lives of every family, but it also involves China, as Vanda said, border security and immigration. President Biden has said he wants to launch a major surge to stop production and sale. A joint resolution in Congress has been proposed to give the president authority to use the military against the Mexican cartels. House Speaker McCarthy recently traveled to the U.S.-Mexico borders and various other politicians want to designate the Jalisco and the Sinaloa cartels as terror organizations. Vanda, families feel helpless and people demand action from their government. What can be done to curb the flow of fentanyl coming through the U.S.-Mexico border? Well, I don't really believe that designating Sinaloa and Jalisco Nueva Generación as uh, terrorist groups will provide useful tools. This is not a new idea. The Obama administration was also considering that designation uh, and, of course, concluded that the current designation of both groups as transnational criminal organizations that are the priority of the Drug Enforcement Administrations and other U.S. law enforcement agencies were sufficient tools. But potentially there is some usefulness out of the threat of the designation is to get the Mexican government of Andres Manuel López Obrador to start more meaningfully tackling the criminal groups in Mexico and more meaningfully collaborating with the United States. For several years since the Calderon administration, the U.S.-Mexican law enforcement cooperation was guided by the Merida Initiative. I'm sure that Mr. Valdez will um, uh, talk um, himself about that. And that cooperation, particularly during the Calderon administration, really amounted to the most intense U.S.-Mexico law enforcement cooperation with a substantial presence of U.S. law enforcement agents in Mexico, joint raids, joint intelligence sharing, at the height of that cooperation, joint um, fusion intelligence centers where U.S. Uh, intelligence and law enforcement officials were present. That cooperation weakened and became much less intense uh, during the Enrique Peña Nieto administration. But after President López Obrador became president, that cooperation really um, collapsed. And this was especially the case when the United States arrested uh, former Mexican Secretary of Defense General Cienfuegos uh, on drug trafficking charges in 2020. 
And of course, uh, the United States, uh, under pressure from Mexico, handed General Cienfuegos to the Mexican government, did not put him on trial in the U.S. But after that, we really saw the Mexican government withdrawing out of cooperation, suspending operations for uh, the agents in Mexico, not sharing intelligence, perhaps saying that it conducted raids against uh, fentanyl labs, but not handing uh, samples from those raids over to DEA. And we are essentially in that same state uh, still today. There is a new security framework, the U.S.-Mexico Bicentennial Framework for safe communities, for security, safe communities and public health that replaced the Merida Initiative. And that on paper states uh, many of the same objectives and elements of cooperation. In practice, however, the Mexican government interprets the new framework as the U.S. stops criminality on the U.S. side of the border, captures corrupt money or money that is heading back to the cartels or corrupt Mexican government officials and hands it over to Mexico and stops the flow of weapons. And Mexico does what it wants on its own side. Recently, there were hearings in the U.S. Senate uh, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on fentanyl. And the administrator uh, of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Ms. Milgram, uh, was very explicit about the lack of uh, meaningful uh, law enforcement cooperation. So that's a long answer to uh, that I don't believe that the terrorist designation will add useful tools. I do believe, however, that it is absolutely essential to strengthen cooperation with Mexico. And that's been a massive challenge. And for that matter, cooperation with China has come to almost a complete halt as well. Guillermo, in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, former Attorney General William Barr called President Andrés Manuel López Obrador of Mexico the cartel's chief enabler. Do you think this is a fair characterization? I think yes and not, but I think that it's not uh, a precise characterization because I don't think or I don't know if I want to think that President López Obrador has not, he has not done any kind of explicit agreement with organized crime. I don't think that he's so stupid to believe that having some kind of agreement and let them and let them to work and growth and expand their activities is useful to Mexico or useful to the United States. So I don't think that in that sense Lopez Obrador is not Cartel's chief enabler. But I think yes, he he has been some kind of involuntarily enabler of the cartels. Because two reasons. First is that he established security policies that are very ineffective to control and reduce security, violence, and to stop or reduce the power of the drug trafficking organizations. Because he believes... In fact, they have grown, right? Yes, they have grown a lot. And they have diversified and they have much, much more power because these uh, hawks are not bullets 
to the cartel's message has really sent the message that they can do anything and that the government will not prosecute them. So he has increased or, or he sent a message of uh, impunity. So in that way, he has created good conditions for the cartels to grow and to diversify and to do what they want. That's one way Lopez Obrador has induced this growing of the cartels. The second reason is because if in Mexico, if you don't send the message from the very top of the politics to the cartels and to all the political class that you will fight very hard to the criminal organizations, some members of your cabinet, the governors, the majors in a lot of municipalities, believe that it is okay that they can uh, have agreements with the in the local level with the criminal organizations. And what we have seen is in this level on the state and municipalities, an increased participation of uh, criminal organizations in the electoral process. And we know that there have a lot of tacit agreements between governors and criminal organizations. So they have expanded and they have a lot of impunity and that's very dangerous for not only for Mexico, but also for the United States citizens because of the of this freedom they have had to, to produce and uh, export fentanyl to the United States. So I think that Lopez Obrador deliberately doesn't want the criminal organizations to grow, but his policies, in practice, he has done that. So I, I think it's a very tragic situation because from the very top of the government of Mexican state, we have allowed them, these organizations to grow. It's, it's, it's tragic. Unfortunately, for those focused on solving the fentanyl crisis, dealing with Mexico and with President López Obrador is not the only problem. The chemicals or the raw materials, as Vanda mentioned, these chemicals used to make the, this killer drug come mainly from China. Back in 2018, Beijing and the U.S. were able to cooperate, and China added some controls to the, these chemical precursors. Fast forward to today, and China has formally withdrawn cooperation in the fight against narcotics. Moreover, Chinese suppliers have found gaps in the existing laws and are selling the unregulated materials, which are used for all sorts of other medications to middlemen in Mexico. Vanda, if we put aside the question of whether or not the U.S. and China will find diplomatic avenues to restart this cooperation, what is specific actions is the U.S. asking from China? So China continues to be the principal source of precursors and pre-precursors for fentanyl. It's also the principal source for precursors and pre-precursors for methamphetamine both that that is produced by the Mexican criminal groups in the United States, uh, but also that's supplied across um, Asia, Asia Pacific. 
India is the second country that's the second supplier of both precursors for meth and for fentanyl. The difficulty in controlling the precursors and for that matter, even the fentanyl type class drugs is that the way drugs are scheduled internationally is by a specific chemical formula. And simply changing a very small element of the molecule will no longer put it on the scheduled, on the controlled list. So particularly synthetic drugs are enormously susceptible to very small alterations that preserve all the uh, addictive, hallucinogenic, psychotropic qualities of the drugs, but are no longer controlled. So the big breakthrough in US-China diplomacy over many years came when in the year 2018, China scheduled the entire class of fentanyl type drugs and, and put them on a control list. Since then, China also added some of the most obvious precursor chemicals that are not dual use, that are specifically designed for production of fentanyl. Uh, but there is tremendous amount of dual use chemicals that are used for both meth and for fentanyl that have wide applications in all kinds of chemical production, pharmaceutical production, industrial, agricultural production, and that there is no appetite in the world, not simply in China, to schedule them. So China will often say, look, we are cooperating. We scheduled the obvious precursors. We promoted the scheduling at the international level, such as at the UN. These other drugs are not scheduled. We can do nothing to control them. Now, that is not fully true. It is obviously the case that the, the drugs that are dual use and are not scheduled are tougher to control. But China could have much more diligent monitoring of where they are being sold, who the buyers are, especially as we know that many of the sellers sell precursors for meth, for fentanyl, cocaine fillers, um, adulterants for cocaine, and obviously cater to Mexican criminal groups. You will have Chinese websites that say that are in Spanish that say we know how to clear Mexican customs, and you will have a bundle of chemicals together that's cocaine fillers, cocaine adulterants, meth precursors, fentanyl precursors. It's obvious that those drugs are not being bought by an agricultural fertilizer production company, for example. Second, when China withdrew out of uh, counter-narcotics cooperation in the summer of 2022 in response to the increasing uh, strategic rivalry between the United States, it also terminated legal cooperation interdiction against drug trafficking networks that the United States identified. Now, this had been long in the making. It was really in 2018 where China arrested an intelligence provided by the United States, several prominent fentanyl smugglers and traffickers to the United States and put them on trial and sentenced them. And since then, however, we have not seen this cooperation. So China has not been willing to share financial intelligence, uh, although it promotes anti-money laundering efforts across Asia. They are specifically focused on what it sees as the illegal uh, move of money out of China. They are not focused on Chinese triads. They are not focused on Chinese fentanyl smugglers. It doesn't cooperate uh, in financial intelligence provision, and it doesn't cooperate in prosecution or other provision. You know, even if China did cooperate, it doesn't mean that there would be the end to fentanyl smuggling. Absolutely not. But nonetheless, the 
really withdraw uh, from any kind of uh, meaningful law enforcement counter-narcotics cooperation is um, extremely detrimental. And it is uh, uh, emblematic of the relationship of rivalry. The United States was hoping that it could have a relationship of geostrategic competition with China and pick issues where it could cooperate, like counter-narcotics, like uh, countering wildlife trafficking and climate change. But China sees the issues very differently. It subordinates those other elements to the geostrategic competition. So it cooperated against wildlife trafficking, it cooperated against fentanyl smuggling, when it hoped that the U.S. would repay by lessening the competition at the geostrategic level. When that didn't happen in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration, China simply terminated this cooperation. And so we find ourselves today at a moment where there is really no meaningful cooperation with China, there is minimal to no cooperation with the Mexican government and law enforcement efforts, as well as demand reduction efforts, prevention, treatment, harm reduction efforts really need to be centered uh, in the United States unless we find a way to persuade the Mexican government that it is in its own interest not to allow the cartels to simply control people, institutions, economies, and territories in the way that uh, Mr. Valdez was describing. Vanda, you mentioned wildlife trafficking. What I have found incredibly disturbing is how Chinese and Mexican crime organizations are now collaborating in other illicit activities too. Particularly disturbing is your work on how Chinese massive desire for wildlife is being satisfied by Mexican cartels in the form of endangered species. Can you explain your discoveries on how drug and wildlife trafficking activities are colliding? Uh, sure. So this, this work that you are describing, Mariana, came out of uh, investigative work that I conducted in Mexico in the fall of 2021 and that came out as a series of reports uh, and articles in the spring and, and summer of last year. And what uh, really uh, is unique uh, is not the fact that you have the same smuggling networks uh, moving different types of commodities, so drugs or wildlife. We see that in other instances. What is unique to the China-Mexico story is the fact that uh, Mexican uh, criminal groups, the big cartels in Aloha and Jalisco in particular, are paying for uh, fentanyl precursors in wildlife products. Products like totoaba buche, precious hardwoods like rosewood or bastard rosewood, as well as other wildlife commodities. Now, this is something that's quite unique to, again, the synthetic uh, opioids that are so appealing to traffickers. We mentioned that the fact that they are so potent, the, the potency per weight ratio sets them apart from many other drugs. And, and it's part and parcel of the synthetic drugs revolution that's sweeping the world. Normally, the amount of precursors that it would take to produce heroin out of poppy grown in Sinaloa, for example, uh, would be very substantial. And the payments for the precursors would be perhaps in hundreds of millions of dollars. But for fentanyl, you need very small amounts. So probably the entire amount that cartels need to pay for precursor is probably tens of millions of dollars. And it could be quite low tens of millions of dollars. So the price markup, the, the, the cost of production and the 
profit markup in the retail market is even an order of magnitude greater than in plant-based drugs. But because they are so cheap, it also becomes uniquely possible to be paying for them in barter, in wildlife products, which amount to probably also millions to tens of millions of dollars. This would not be enough to pay for cocaine. It would not be enough to pay for cocaine precursors, but it's uniquely enough to pay for fentanyl precursors. Now, we don't know really, uh, that we don't have any good intelligence as to whether the cartels are paying for 80% of the precursors in wildlife or for 20% or 30%. And obviously, we don't want that uh, price uh, to be very high, the, the percentage to be very high, because that means that more Mexican species, more Mexican forests are destroyed. They're already facing pressure and will face far greater poaching pressure as we are as we are speaking, they, they already suffered tremendous pressure. The pressure will grow. And meanwhile, the Lopez Obrador administration completely gutted offices such as Profepa and other CONAP and other environmental agencies that monitor, if not enforce, environmental laws in Mexico and protected areas. The the final comment that I want to make though is that you know, even though we don't know what the what the percentage is that is being paid for, it's nonetheless um, clearly designed to evade law enforcement, anti-money laundering measures in the banking system. But it's really detrimental and uh, terribly devastating to communities and economies and institutions in Mexico. Because what it means is that not only will the cartels have an incentive to source illegally, to chop down more forests for hardwoods. Uh, but they have greater and greater incentives to take over the entire fishing, including legal fishing economy in Mexico. They have greater incentive to take over the legal logging economy in Mexico because there's just more commodities with which to make their payments uh, into China. Before I, I ask this question to Guillermo, let me just ask you one more thing, Vanda. You mentioned rosewood, you mentioned totoaba. What other species have, do you know have been affected by this? So in the Mexico, it's various reptiles, turtles, tortoises. There are instances where Hong Kong would capture turtles uh, that would only later be identified as endemic uh, and new species in Mexico. But even before they were listed under science as a new species, they would already be showing up in seizures in Hong Kong, feeding the Chinese demand and interest in wildlife. Lots of uh, crocodilian skins, that's an interesting story. There is a legal trade in crocodilian skills. Crocodilians are alligators, crocodiles, uh, various types of crocodile species. There are legal farms in Mexico, and they often are meant to generate income for local communities. However, uh, unfortunately, in the Mexican case, there is a lot of laundering of um, crocodilian species, both crocodiles and alligators, that are illegally caught in the wild and issued a fake provenance. They said that they came from the farm and then they are being shipped onto Mexico. And there are increasing instances of jaguar uh, hunting. Now, the jaguar poaching in Mexico has not reached the proportions that we see in Suriname, in Guyana, in various parts of the Amazon, where jaguars are really facing great poaching pressure now 
to supply China. But nonetheless, there are increasing instances. And what happens inevitably as Chinese smuggling wildlife trafficking networks become established, uh, the scope of species that becomes hunted, that becomes logged, just grows and grows until the forests are literally empty uh, if they are left standing at all. And sadly, here, and I'll hand over to uh, Guillermo, the tree planting program of uh, President Lopez Obrador is not helpful, and it's probably even detrimental because it pays people to to plant fruit trees, but it doesn't pay them to preserve existing forests. And so, uh, you know, in my research, I saw significant instances of communities just chopping down the existing forest even very good, high-quality hardwood forests so that they could qualify for the $200 and be planting fruit trees. So directly counterproductive to either reducing climate change, uh, controlling global warming, and, and terribly disastrous to biodiversity protection. And worse yet will come. Once Chinese traders have a foot in, they tend to just siphon the, the forest empty. Incredibly sad and bad policy. Guillermo, we mentioned cartels have diversified and they have expanded into other businesses, some illegal like extortion or or human trafficking and other legal businesses like avocados or fisheries like Vanda was mentioned. Can you explain where have they diversified and how do they operate? Well, as you said, we have had some process, very interesting process of the way the drug trafficking organizations has evolved in the last, let's say, 20 years, 20, 24 years. And uh, if 20 years ago you asked a definition of organized crime in Mexico, we could tell you that 80 or 90 percent of the organized crime was equal to drug trafficking. Now, if you ask what is organized crime in Mexico, maybe drug trafficking is 50% of all the organized crime and the the rest is organized crime dedicated to robbery, extortion, immigrants, undocumented immigrants trafficking, white slaves trafficking, what we call, what you call the stealing of gasoline or diesel or natural gas from the Pemex oil pipes. So there are a lot of uh, criminal activities and illegal markets that the uh, these organizations are controlling now besides the drug trafficking business. And, the, and this is because in part of the fragmentation of the drug trafficking organizations. In 2006, in 2006, we had seven major drug trafficking organizations in Mexico. Sinaloa Cartel, Tijuana Cartel, Juarez Cartel, El Golfo Cartel, Zetas Cartel, La Familia in, in Michoacán. Those were the seven biggest and most important drug trafficking organizations. Now, because of the fight of the state against them, mainly during Calderón's administration, but not only, 
there are now only two major drug trafficking organizations, Sinaloa, Jalisco Nueva Generación. And the other five drug trafficking organizations disappeared as national organizations and as drug trafficking organizations. But some parts of those criminal drug trafficking organizations split it and became and small bands dedicated to all these illegal activities in the and illegal markets like trafficking immigrants or stealing gasoline or extortioning people. And the most common right now is extortion because it's a very easy crime to commit. You need to threat the people that you can apply some kind of violence against the people to ask for money. So if people live in a, in, a, in a climate of insecurity, and we are living in that kind of ambience or climate that you can be robbed in any street in the cities, you are extorted very easily. And although the, 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 most of the firms in Mexico, around 30% of all the business in Mexico has been extortioned. And also when the, the, the criminal organizations have a con an agreement with local authorities, they also try to control legal economic activities. For example, in Lázaro Cárdenas, in Michoacán, in the port of Lázaro Cárdenas, they <laughs> negotiated with a big uh, steel plant that there is a still a big plant in Lázaro Cárdenas. This organization, La Familia, controlled the mining, the production of iron and coal needed to produce the steel in, in the plant. So they controlled the, produ the, 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 the production of the, of the iron. They stole the iron and they used to pay the Chinese people who sent them chemical precursors to produce methamphetamines, and they paid with iron. And they decided to have legal agreements with the plant that produces steel, and the La Familia Cartel was a legal supplier of coal to the big plant of steel. So it's incredible the way the criminal organizations has evolved. They also control, for example, the production of lemon in Michoacán or the production of avocado in, in Michoacán and Jalisco. They extortion them. They, or, for example, when they steal a lot of gasoline from the pipes of Pemex, they, they need to sell all the gasoline they stole. They steal. So they go to the, let's say, the, the gas stations, Businessmen Association. They don't go from one gas station to another gas station to force them to sell the stolen gasoline. So they go to the business association of people who has gas stations and they tell them that if they don't buy as, a, as this, all the members of the gas station association they will kill them. 
So there are a lot of uh, variations of how do they operate to extortion, to robberies, to control economic activities, and all of these because of the weakness of the rule of law in Mexico and because of uh, in, in in these last four years uh, of the because of the wrong security policies of Lopez Obrador. So we are living a very dangerous and critical moment in terms of security. And uh, now with the problem with the this very legitimate pressure from the United States government because of the fentanyl problem in the United States. So uh, we don't have security policies. We have a more powerful and more rich criminal organizations. We have an imminent crisis with United States in the relationship on security cooperation. So it's not easy times. No. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this uh, episode. Vanda, let me just close by asking you this question. What actions must be taken by the U.S. government to try to disrupt this fentanyl supply chain? Well, the United States is limited in what it can do unless it can build cooperation with either China or Mexico. Mr. Valdez was just talking about the crisis in the U.S.-Mexico relationship over security. What uh, the Mexican government has learned, unfortunately, across two administrations now, is that it can use the force of the migration spigot to try to get the United States to back off on other issues, whether that's security cooperation, whether that is Uh, climate and green energy issues, whether it is uh, trade relations, as long as the Mexican government threatens that it will withdraw from stopping migrants from heading to the United States, it believes that the U.S. will just give up on other issues. A very important aspect of U.S. policy must be breaking that sense, breaking that belief that uh, we are at the mercy of the spigot that Mexico turns on of or not. Once we get beyond that, I think that the U.S. should very strongly be demanding much better cooperation from the Mexican government. And in the absence of that better cooperation, there might be considerations given to issues such as much more intense inspection at the U.S.-Mexico border, even though this will affect economic interests of Mexican businesses and Mexican government. Thank you very, very much. Unfortunately, I think this conversation could last for much longer, and I hope to invite you both to another episode of Mexico Matters. We have a lot of other things to talk about. Vanda, Guillermo, thank you very much for this. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.